welcome to series two of Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. We tossed around some names for the title of this new series, um, trying our best to avoid mentioning COVID-19. Um, we agreed on art in the time of quarantine, like the book, but art in quarantine instead of love and cholera. Um, we think it's apt enough. As the series, we will be doing two things, really. Firstly, checking in with gallerists, artists, curators and finding out how creatives and the creative industry is coping um, with the closures of galleries and lockdown. But also, the majority of conversations move away from corona doom talk and into their wonderful art practices and explorations which might encourage you at home to do the same or at the very least remind you that there is wonderful and exciting art to engage with outside of this crisis that we found ourselves in. Um, Today's episode was recorded at the very start of the coronavirus outbreak so we managed to avoid talking about it altogether which seems um, like an impossibility now (laughs) but it was only a week ago, uh, which tells you how fast things have moved. Um, the episode is with Patrick Hughes. Um, I, I felt very lucky to get to chat to him in his enormous Shoreditch-based studio called Reverspective, where a team of six artists were busily painting Patrick's visions onto carefully constructed three-dimensional structures to create his iconic Reverspective optical illusions. If you haven't seen um, one of uh, Patrick's Reverspective Optical Illusions, then I urge you to, if you just Google Patrick Hughes Reverspective Artworks, um, you should see some videos online. And uh, I, I would say video would be the best way to experience his paintings. Um, you'll see what I mean when you look at them or if you have already seen them. Um, Walking through the various rooms of his studios, the the walls seem to move. Um, And I was guided by Patrick, who is extremely charismatic and somewhat eccentric. Um, It almost felt like I was in a Roald Dahl story or something. So we talked about in the episode uh, loads of things, um, amongst them the importance of humour and philosophy in his work, how the studio functions and uh, also his name and shame column on his website reserved for his imitators um, which is another thing that I would urge you to go and look at on his website because it is um, whilst it is something for Patrick that I'm I know is very um, irritating it's also um, quite good fun to read through (laughs) they're quite catty Um, so if you've got any thoughts on today's episode or you'd like to share what you've been up to to stay creative during quarantine, then please get in touch with me. We'd love to hear from you at rosa.tor at hepsitrust.org.uk. Um, and hopefully we can start inspiring each other with ways to stay creative. I will read them out in the next episode if you email me them in. Um, so enjoy and happy quarantine. Hughes made his first three-dimensional relief painting in 1964. His intention was to do the opposite of what was done. 
More than 50 years on, he's still doing so. First exhibiting with Angela Flowers in 1970, Hughes's painted reliefs constantly baffle his audience, demonstrating how deceptive appearances can be. As we walk towards the seemingly flat paintings, they loom out at us, creating a disorientating, moving experience. The preconceived assumptions of eye and brain are challenged, inevitably raising important questions about our perception and the subconscious. His witty allusions are not meant to confuse us, although they do, but aim to clarify our relation to reality. Instead of describing paradox, we can now experience it interactively in Hughes's work. For his work is more to do with us, the way we think and the way we perceive. Patrick Hughes's work is included in major public collections such as Tate, Victorian Albert Museum and the British Council. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today um, and have me in this fantastic building and studio space. Um, how do you like to work when you get here? How does this place, because it's huge and this, it's such a big operation, so many people involved, how does it function? How does it work here? I come down here at about uh, 7.15 and I make the tea and the coffee and put out the right spirit. And about eight o'clock, the uh, up to nine artists arrive and I give them uh, coffee, sometimes with milk, sometimes without, or mint tea. And we talk for a little while, for about 20 minutes. Mm. And then we start uh, working. And at uh, 10 o'clock, we have tea and biscuits. Mm. And at 12.30 till 1.15, we have lunch. And at 4.30, start leaving at quarter to five, they go. And during the course of the day, I manage a lot of things that go on. Mm. And at its best, I try to think of ideas in my sketchbook, maybe daily, but maybe sometimes missing. I have looked at my sketchbook today. And then with Donna, the chief designer, I call her mm. the designer, on the um, Photoshop, she would uh, perhaps work on what I've thought of doing. Right. She might scan in uh, various things, or she used to scan in, but now she probably buys them online. Mm -hmm. So if I was doing, um, I was, uh, Michele upstairs is doing something which I've called artistic, which has got some books with artists' names on, and it's got an easel, and it's got some Mondrian's. Mm. and Lichtenstein. So she's worked all that out in the perspective system. Mm, mm. And that's what people do is, Michele is painting that picture and then uh, other people are painting other pictures in oil on the shape board. Yes. What are they made out of? These made of MDF and um, epoxy resin to glue the MDF to the plywood. Right. Um, starting out in 1961, you had your first show. Yeah. Um, you described it as uh, pop art before pop art, before there were pop artists. Yeah, it wasn't called pop art at the time. Mm. It was, though, um, um, I don't know, Lawrence Halloway and the uh, independent group and um, uh, Richard Hamilton and Eduardo Polozzi were practicing a kind of pop art. 
but I, um, that I was um, just just before uh, showing because a lot of them at the Royal College, David Hockney and Alan Jones and mm. Peter Blake and uh, uh, the awful Derek Bosher and others were and Peter Phillips uh, were at the <laughs> Royal College where I was at, uh, a school teacher and I mm. was actually exhibiting. So they started to exhibit about on their own behalf three, two or three or four or five years later. Right. And then moving on a few years later, you painted your first works that included the reverse perspective or the reverspective. For someone who doesn't know what that means or what it is, how would you describe it? Well, I've made up that word. It's not a very interesting word out of reverse and perspective because I make things in perspective. That's the first thing I do, mm. which is called forced perspective on stage or occasion architecture. And then I make the, it in reverse. So perspective drawing is a method of representing in a, on a flat plane something mm. that is like the world, three-dimensional. And then... Uh, a few years, a few years after it was invented, people began to make things in perspective, which is a bit strange because the world is already in perspective. Mm. And then I made it in um, in 1964 in reverse, where things stick out, mm. my things stick out where they should go in and go in where they should stick out. Because mm -hmm. there is a kind of spatial quality to them in that th there's a movement to them but that depends on the viewer and where they choose to stand and where they move. Is that kind of viewer-artwork relationship, it, was that something important when you started it or is that an outcome of the creation? I think it's very interesting what you say, but it's quite right what you say, it's poignant what you say, it's important what you say. Um, the famous artist of the 20th century, Marcel Duchamp, said, that the artist creates half of the artwork and the other half is created by the viewer. He was actually quoting a French poet, uh, not Verlaine, but one of those kind of guys who said, I write the poems, but the reader makes the poetry, if you like. Mm. So it's important that the viewers are part in things. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, to say, if someone speaks on a topic uh, like Brexit, they may be telling you something about Brexit, but they also but they may be telling you something about themselves. Yeah. So at, at, at any time, one has to in, interrogate the uh, the question of who uh, who who is who is saying what to whom, or what part of the experience is yours, and what part is is given to you. Mm -hmm. It must be really exciting at one of your exhibitions. You know, there's a general sort of the way people interact in spaces is obviously dictated by the artwork and often you know you get a lot of standing still and chin stroking at, at one point at your exhibitions is there a lot of movement in the room because the people viewing them are sort of standing you know you can catch them at different perspectives and pa painting completely changes the artwork completely changes yeah it's great that um, it, uh, people move around and in there is a whole um, lot of artwork that's uh, powered by uh, small electric motors. Mm. And uh, I've uh, dispensed with that idea. I forgot <laughs> what it's called. Uh, part, of, uh, part of optical art to mm. have things moving. 
But I've have uh, utilised, uh, I've saved on the electricity <laughs> and used people's old movement. <laughs> yes, I didn't real. I didn't realise. I didn't realise lots of things. But one thing that I I didn't realise that it would refer my work would refer to your body. Mm. There's really there's our perception through our eyes, mm. and there is our perception through our bodies, which is called proprioception. Right. And proprioception or bodily perception that you feel through your knees and your feet and your solar plexus and your whole body. I didn't realise that I would be uh, such a hippie, as it were, <laughs> uh, to uh, be interested in the relation between the body and the world. Mm -hmm. It's been written that the experience of seeing a Patrick Hughes sculpted painting in reality is really to experience unreality and the paradox of illusory space and movement. What is the paradox of illusory space and movement? Well, um, paradox has uh, three qualities. One is self-referring, two, it's contradictory, and three, it's in a vicious circle. So in the sense it's self-referring, reversepective is making things in perspective in a world that is already made in perspective, if you like, by our looking at it. Second of all, it's contradictory in the sense that it's inside out, back to front, the mm. wrong way round. And third of all, it's a vicious circle because um, you're uh, looking at it and moving and asserting that it moves in a circular relation. The relation between you and it is, is circular. And that actually does, as incidentally, refer, results in circular movement, mm. in my perspective boxes, seem to turn, as it were, as if mm. they're on a turntable. So it is uh, very much uh, like a paradox, retrospective. Mm. Um, you're also, of course, known for your rainbow paintings, um, examples of which you've kindly donated to Art on a Postcard before. Um, you said that the rainbow represented a solid experience. What do you mean by that? Well, it solidifies experience, I mean to say, because a rainbow is, uh, you can't call them up, they just happen. Mm -hmm. They're, uh, as it were, acts of God. They need a sun and they need uh, droplets of water and they need an observer. Mm -hmm. And you need to be in the right place with the sun at your back, as you might say. So uh, needs for the reflection and refraction within the um, spheres of water to happen. So that is an experience that is given to each of us who sees them. And what I, when I realise, when you paint a rainbow, mine's are much brighter and thicker and stiller and smaller and so on than a rainbow. So I'm, I know quite well, it's obvious to me that I'm, it's ironic that I'm choosing to represent such a, an evanescent and uh, mm -hmm. uh, evaporating thing mm. as if it was a solid. So yeah. there's a great contrast between a representation of a rainbow and what a rainbow really is. Yeah. It's quite, it seems as though your work is quite sort of philosophical in a sense. Do you connect with <clears throat> philosophy? Do you read a lot of philosophy? Yeah, that's <clears throat> a, a very good insight. I'm proud to say that uh, I am interested in philosophy. Yeah. I think that the um, in amongst the ancient Greeks um, there were two great philosophers of paradox. Zeno, who was interested in infinity, 
and Heraclitus who was in, interested in flux and he yeah. said you can't step twice into the same river and so on and the way up and the way down is the same and his follower um, Cratylus went even further and said you can't step once into the same river <laughs> because rivers are not things mm. they're a uh, motion of water you know, yeah. the back the banks are fairly stationary, mm. but the river is a, a, in itself flowing. So it was a good remark of his to sort of cap Heraclitus. And that idea of, of flux is a, a part of uh, part of a paradoxical philosophy. He was a paradoxical philosopher, Heraclitus. Mm. And uh, there are very many examples. An example I often give is. Uh, the scientist Eddington in 1928 wanted to describe um, something about the theory of relativity and he said everything that leads you to believe that the train is leaving Paddington would be equally true if Paddington left the train, mm. you know, so that there are always that uh, relationship between the uh, um, two things, you know, the observer and the thing, you know, maybe the thing is moving. Maybe the observer is moving on, maybe both are moving. Mm. And those relations between the station and, and Paddington, and you find it when you're sitting in a train and the other train moves and you think you're moving. Mm. So that when, um, when you consider uh, experience, it necessarily depends on your uh, position in relation to what you're discussing. Mm. Yes. So then how do you think that specifically, uh, where do you see that most in your work, do you think, that kind of <clears throat> philosophy? Or is it kind of across the whole project, if you like? No, I think I was lucky mm. in that I, for in my f flat work or, or ordinary work, I would have pictures that said, look, this is contradictory, this is paradoxical. I might have... Uh, a snake eating its own tail, as it were, mm. or I would be interested in infinity, or I would say with the rainbows. I did a lot of pictures which told you, said this is paradoxical. But in the case of the retrospective, I've been so lucky because it gives you an experience that is paradoxical, mm. I think, that's contradictory, yes. yeah. that things aren't happening yeah. as you thought they might. Mm. And of course, with paradox, there's something fun about a puzzle or a paradox is it do you find a lot of play and humor um while you're working or is that something that comes afterwards i'm i think i'm a humorist yeah mm. i bought I, I remember when i was a student i can remember the location it was in leeds uh, near the um railway station and i was in a car with my then teacher john jones and i said to him i've decided to take up the, the comic attitude to art mm. rather than the tragic, I suppose, is the other way around. And he said, oh, really? He didn't really get it. But I announced to him that I was going to pursue it, and I have pursued it, and I am interested in comedy. Mm. And various comedians have, have said things like, tragedy is the raw material of comedy. <laughs> and, uh, and comedy is... Uh, a particular point of view, you know, using irony. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, comedians are often ironic. Yeah. And uh, using uh, your contradiction, you know, and using 
a, a variety of techniques mm. that are to uh, I don't know to to inspire or to illuminate. Yeah. So I, I, I actually when I was a boy I did I would I thought of being a comedian. I thought it was an attractive mm. job, but that job didn't really exist in quite the way it does today. But I do f follow comedians and comedy now. I'm drawn to comedy. And um, which comedians do you like? I like um, uh, Stuart uh, Thingy. Stuart Lee? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like Stuart Lee, who is in, inclined to go in uh, paradoxical circles, if yes, you like. Yes, yes. But yeah, I do to some extent follow uh, actual stand-up comics. Yeah. But I, I particularly followed when I was... Uh, a student and later a, a writer called N.F. Simpson who wrote plays, One Way, one way Pendulum is one of his plays and a resounding mm. tinkle that are lots of ironic uh, titles. Mm. So um, yeah, I do, I am, I think I am a comedian. And looking at those books over there in my, um, do you see in that particular um, shelf, yes. it starts with Paul Clay who was a great inspiration to me, mm -hmm. who is often, if not always, comic. And then next to him is Magritte, who is often, if not always, comic. Mm. So, uh, you know, it so happens that I have it about 30 or 40 books about Magritte and a similar number about Clay. And mm. I'm drawn to their comic vision. Because I suppose as well, you know, it's also in some juxtapositions that you have in the work themselves um, that are being painted uh, within the retrospective work. So like, you know, scenes of, um, I guess, places that look similar to Shoreditch and then uh, Brillo packaging uh, along the other side. I suppose that's postmodern and ironic, um, which is always full of humour, I guess. It's very hard to know how to get comedy into these things. Mm. It's not easy to get it in. Mm. And I like those, um, I people don't like them very much, do they? I like, uh, to a certain extent, Banksy, and to a certain extent, Coonsy, mm. and to a certain extent, <laughs> Hursty, um, in the <laughs> sense that they are, uh, to a certain extent, comic. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes put them in the pictures. And Lichtenstein, mm. Roy Lichtenstein, I've got some of his prints of the brushstrokes, which are comic in that he made um, pop art and brushstrokes, you know, to make fun of the abstract expressions, if you like. Mm. So, uh, it, but it's a, it's a, it's, that's the most difficult part of my work, really, to make uh, um, Reverspective as comic as you can make rainbows. Mm. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. With the rainbow, you can uh, obviously make it comic by having it upside down, or have it come into a cell and go grey, or um, mm. have it coming out of a, uh, somebody's trousers, <laughs> or, or, or uh, have met very many of them. It's easier to work with than retrospective is. But there is something, people often laugh at retrospectives because yeah. they have been at a low level, perhaps say tricked, or confused, or oh I get it, or revealed, or there is an, a yeah, comic. Absolutely. 
it's so it's extremely playful i feel like when i'm sitting in front of yeah. them you know there's a strong relationship i feel in your work between the artist and the viewer when i'm looking at it i almost feel like okay you want me to view this thing and now if i walk over here i almost feel like i'm being guided mm -hmm. but then also i have the agency to move around in front of it and interpret it how i want so there's almost a kind of Mm, yeah, yeah, kind of playfulness, like I guess in the yeah, that's relationship. An to, that's a good uh, expression to use with it, to be playful. I do think along those lines. Yeah, um, I've got to ask about plagiarism too, because oh, yeah. you reserve a space on your website for those who have imitated your work without crediting you, um, which must be enormously frustrating for you. But how do you keep an eye on something like that? How how can you? sort of when when do you see it as imitation and when is it sort of artistic sharing and lending and stealing I guess it's a good question Rosa about plagiarism because I am a plagiarist myself in the sense that I put uh, Coonsy or Banksy or Hursty in my pictures and I often or, Licht, or Lichtenstein I often quote other artists or Marguerite or Clay or Mondrian so I often do quote them um, but my uh, plagiarists are all of a low level. I've never ever attracted anybody with any sophistication or, <laughs> or nouse or even ability to draw or paint. Oh, no. uh, so I attract the most common and uh, useless, the most trite <laughs> imitators. And there's about 40 of them. And yesterday, I think, Ian said, my brother sent me this one and somebody had copied a Banksy mm. one that I'd done just the same. But on the other hand, it is a, these things are sent to try us. You get annoyed mm. for about a day, and for about two or three days you're irritated, mm. and after about a week you don't care. So it, the initial experience is, is always upsetting, and there are a number of people who are making a mediocre living out of my original idea. But mm. it, it doesn't really matter. Mm. It, but it's fun on the website. <laughs> it's please, really good fun to read. Please do look at it because you can say uh, what yeah. a wanker more. <laughs> it's really good fun to read. You must have a lot of good fun writing those. Yeah, I haven't written them <laughs> a while, but it is good fun. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and currently, um, have you got any sort of major projects coming up or? Anything in the pipeline? The things that are in the pipeline right now is I am showing with the Palace Gallery in Boston, Massachusetts, mm. and I am showing with the Gallery Boisserie in, in Cologne. So I've got two large-ish shows on. Um, and apart from that, I just continue to produce the multiples, three or four a year, and I've got a new one of the Mage Foundation in the south of France. Mm. and a new one mm. of the in and out Venice. So there's always uh, something new coming on. I've just developed that uh, new space, that new viewing space that I showed you earlier, hanging the yeah. last picture. Um, so I'm, I'm always uh, trying to do something. Mm. Yeah, the website is reverspective.com. Reverspective.com. And you've got some fabulous videos on there of how the pieces are constructed and things like that for listeners that want to sort of see it in action. Oh well. yeah, you must, you have to see it on film. Yeah. Luck again, luckily for me, not only did Photoshop come in so that I could do all this stuff, mm. came in about 20 years ago, 
and I've used it ever since. But also uh, videos of people on their phones I've got uh, can show it. And 35 million people watched a guy's video of my piece in the Birmingham City Art Gallery taken on his iPhone. Wow. It's about 10 or 15, but it's actually 36 million because of a million every now and then. And pe people do that a terrific uh, lot on film. Yeah. And I like uh, film because it's uh, in a Heraclitean sense, it's flowing and, flow and, and flux like, mm. whereas photography is so still and stationary. Yeah. And I want to have that movement. Yeah, it must be incredibly hard to sort of when you have to, I don't know, if a gallery asks for a scan of an artwork or something, for you that must be quite troublesome. And yeah, I suppose so a video would. It's a bit suit. depressing. Yeah, yeah, really. I often, I often send a, a short film on, mm. the, on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's been fascinating hearing about your work and your practice. And as I said, I think your works are a wonderful sort of intersection between impressively technical and also a joy and wonderful to, to stare into and to get lost in. So um, thank you very much for giving up the time to talk to me today. Um, and for donating to Arsenal Postcard so many times. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you, Rose. Thank you for listening to Art on a Podcast. To find out more about anything in today's episode, go to artonapostcard.com and be sure to follow us on all our social channels at Art on a Postcard. Goodbye!